investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, investors, to episode 10 of the Absolute Return podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kessler. And it is Friday, April 19th, and that's Good Friday. Markets are closed today. In fact, it's a great Friday for us to be in the office, going through all the major events, news, global macro data, and investment research we've done over the week, summarizing it for you guys. So let's get into it. Off the top, Zoom and Pinterest, they rocketed higher on their stock market IPOs. Are these pops justified? Chinese economic growth stabilizes in the first quarter. Is it smooth sailing from here? Canopy growth to buy acreage holdings in a 3.4 billion dollar cannabis acquisition. What makes this deal so unique? Qualcomm shares rise 40% on the week. We're going to talk about what happened there. And finally, why is it bad to invest based solely on dividends? A couple of interesting initial public offerings in the market this week with both Pinterest and Zoom having IPOs on Thursday. Pinterest shares the popular social networking site. They rose 20% on their first day of trading and Zoom, the video conferencing company, rocketed up 72%, which makes it the biggest first day IPO pop of the year thus far. Historically, tech IPOs have opened at an average premium or first day pop of 23% since 2010. What's interesting, some dynamics behind these IPOs, they both priced the IPO pricing above their initial price ranges. What we saw was from uh, when they're out marketing the IPOs to investors, there was pretty substantial demand. So they both ended up raising the IPO price. And this was in the face of Lyft's IPO, which hasn't gone so well. It had its one day pop from about 72 bucks a share to 80. Now I believe it's in the sub $60 range, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, so it's dropped uh, nearly 20% from its IPO price and probably more than 30% since its peak on the first day of trading. Uh, in addition to that, another interesting dynamic on Pinterest is that uh, where they price the IPO is actually 12% below the price that it at last sold shares in the private market two years ago. What happened there is you had a bunch of late stage venture investors getting into the private round and actually not really making any money on the IPO. They could have you know, held off on that and, and bought it into the IPO. What are your thoughts on these two uh, new issues coming to the market? Yeah, I guess starting with with Pinterest, what you're seeing with them is that they're having a little bit of saturation in their core U.S. market. So they have about 82 million users in the U.S. um, and it's growing at a slower pace than their overall user base, uh, including international. Yeah, it's largely women too, right? Yes, yeah. Uh, Something that was interesting is that 80% of the women in the U.S. that age 60 to 64 are already users. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah. So in terms of, I guess, you know, looking at it from a monetization standpoint is some of the worry is that most of the monetization has been in the U.S. So their ARPU, their average revenue per user is around $3 in the U.S., whereas internationally, it's only 25 cents. So there is quite a bit of room for them to bring up those numbers. But if, if you're marketing to women, you have to be on that platform. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. With, with 80% of your market there, it makes sense, right? Yeah, and people are wondering, are they going to take the same route that Facebook did in terms of really harvesting all of their data? And uh, I heard comments from the CEO that they're not going to be nearly as gress- aggressive with respect to data harvesting, advertising to their units, and things of that nature. A couple of other interesting dynamics behind these, these IPOs. I want to get a bit technical. So on the Zoom front, they IPO'd 24 million shares, which was only 10% of the shares outstanding. This implies a very little amount of the company was up for trading, uh, only 10% of the shares as float. And if you look at the day one volume, we're 25.7 million shares. So effectively, over the entire float of the entire company traded on the first day. And this is what we talk about a lot of people getting a lot of investors getting into these deals just to sell out after the first day and you've really seen this cycle i mean the entire shares of the float more than the entire float has cycled throughout the first day and if we look at pinterest they offered 75 million shares or only 14 percent of the company and these technology companies only offer a really slim chunk of the business up for sale so they create these supply and demand dynamic such that demand far exceeds supply for the shares and they get this really nice lift on the first day. One day volume on Pinterest of 87.1 million shares, which again exceeded the entire float of 75 million shares. Not necessarily a lot of long-term shareholders into the IPO. I figure it's mostly short-term speculators. And speaking of speculators, there's a really interesting example of inefficient markets with this. There's a company called Zoom Technologies, which is a penny stock, ticker Z-O-O-M, trading over-the-counter. But as you can see, the ticker is Zoom, and some people must have mistaken that to be the Zoom Video Communications, which is this new hot IPO with ticker ZM. Nonetheless, this Chinese company, Zoom, which was a very, very small microcap penny stock. I think like $8 million market cap. Well, now that's after (laughs) a 27,000% year-to-date return. So it went from, I believe, fractions of a penny in price prior to this other Zoom's IPO to now nearly $3 per share, $8 million market cap up from you know a few thousand dollars so markets inefficient but interesting to see how these things play out well yeah and, and the interesting aspect as well is that they actually the other zoom actually inc had their first pop when zoom actually filed their s1 which at that point in time it, it's just filing their prospectus for initial public offering there's it's not even trading yet right yeah, yeah which which is kind of funny the other interesting aspect of of zoom just from their roadshow that i thought was was kind of cool was that their cfo was the only one in person for the roadshow whereas their ceo stayed back at their offices and used their technology to conference in yeah. So I found that kind of interesting. Yeah, good display of their service. I read another interesting story on the CEO. So he's a Chinese immigrant and his visa got rejected, I believe, eight times over two years. And he finally made it into the U.S. and now happens to be a billionaire technology entrepreneur. So really cool story behind the scenes going on on Zoom. And Pinterest has a cool story as well. On to some global macro, Chinese economic growth bounces back in Q1. It experienced 6.4% annualized GDP growth, beating the consensus estimate of 6.3%. And this is a really big bounce back from Q4, 
as you recall, we previously discussed a few podcasts ago of pretty unimpressive economic data coming out of China. Uh, there seemed to be quite the slowdown there. As you remember, markets really tanked on fear of a potential global recession into Q4. We saw some economic numbers out of the U.S. and potentially Germany start to turn around. But now it seems to have come to China, where their economy seems to be uh, be rocking. I mean, 6.4% growth. That's right between their target economic growth range of 6% to 6.5%. Although below their 6.6% rate of expansion last year, which already happens to be China's slowest annual growth in nearly three decades. To put this into context, 6% growth of a 13.4 trillion GDP economy, that's basically adding the annual economic output of Switzerland every year. Just to put that in some context, it really is a huge number. So how do they do it? Well, on the positive, Q1 economic growth in China was largely driven by strong manufacturing production and greater consumer spending by Chinese consumers, which is positive. One thing that we saw after the 0809 credit crisis was this massive fiscal stimulus out of China, a lot of it which went into fixed asset investments. You saw a lot of build out of infrastructure, roads and bridges to nowhere, unproductive infrastructure such as empty shopping malls, these giant ghost cities with no one living in them. And it was largely wasteful investment, fixed asset investment, just because they needed to put people to work, they needed to invest this money, and they needed to hit their economic growth numbers. So it's nice to see some more positive drivers out of the Chinese economy. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I just wanted to point out as well that, you know, you mentioned some of that fixed asset investment uh, that perhaps wasn't as productive, but still a lot of their growth still is stimulus driven. Mm-hmm. So there's two types of uh, stimulus that a government can provide. So fiscal and monetary. Uh, fiscal stimulus, they've they've had tax cuts. Um, so reducing their value added tax from 16% to 13%. On the fiscal side, they've also issued another 300 billion worth of bonds for infrastructure projects. So hopefully those will be productive projects. Uh, And then on the monetary stimulus side, they've reduced the reserve requirements for the banks to try to encourage some more lending for small to medium-sized enterprises. Yeah, and that's not necessarily positive given that uh, many of the loans going out are not good loans and they just need to roll them over because these companies can't necessarily pay them back. Absolutely. And that's been, that's been a major concern of the Chinese economy is kind of, well, it used to be the shadow banking sector, but now looking at some of the banks that could be some cause for concern as, uh, you know, messing with reserve requirements, you know, that could be uh, quite problematic. But it's an issue of malinvestment. Investors were concerned about this fixed asset investment, but now those concerns have moved more towards bad credit and a potential credit crisis down the line as more and more bad debt builds up in the financial system. Absolutely. And so in terms of their overall economic strategy, it seems to be quite stimulus driven. You know, do you see that as a strategy as being sustainable? Well, it's an economic experiment whose outcome is yet to be determined. You've never seen a centrally driven economy 
such as this that is has the the government so heavily involved so the chinese economy is certainly extremely unique a lot of people have been talking or calling for a chinese bubble to burst over the past decade thus far we haven't seen it happen a couple things i wanted to touch on with respect to the chinese economic growth numbers now you really need to take the numbers coming out of china with a grain of salt analysts for years have questioned the authenticity of the economic data coming out of China. So they suspect China's National Bureau of Statistics, which reports much of the country's data. They're more focused on looking or making the government look good as opposed to giving an accurate reflection of the country's economic health. Obviously, they're very well aware that uh, the Chinese government has given these this strict mandate to grow between six and six and a half percent. And so the people behind producing the economic data really know that they're not allowed to report anything sub 6%. Got an interesting and pretty hilarious quote out of a gentleman named Leland Miller, the CEO of advisory firm China Beige Book. He stated, the Chinese published GDP numbers are absolute garbage. It's certainly the consensus that these numbers are reliable. So there you have it. A lot of people, a lot of economists and analysts, quite skeptical. That being said, you've got to take these Chinese numbers with a grain of salt and just continue monitoring the situation out there. Interesting deal in the cannabis space with Canopy Growth agreeing to buy acreage holdings in a $3.4 billion deal. What happened here was Canopy reached uh, an acquisition agreement to buy New York-based Acreage Holdings. Uh, that company is a multi-state operator of dispensaries, cultivation sites, and processing facilities throughout the U.S. Some of the terms behind the deal uh, and the structure is very interesting, which is why we want to talk about. The way it works is Canopy will make an upfront payment of 300 million bucks once they get shareholder approval. And what this means is Canopy is effectively buying an option to buy acreage because they won't take them over right away. What they're going to do is pay them this $300 million and once they execute their option in the future, they'll do a share exchange where Canopy will exchange their shares for acreage shares, effectively take it over by issuing more shares at a ratio of 0 0.5818. The reason they're doing this is just to, it's effectively a loophole. Cannabis wants to expand into the U.S., but as you remember, in the U.S., cannabis is still illegal on the federal level. So they're, in fact, not allowed to buy acreage, and they would definitely lose their TSX listing if they did have any uh, U.S. operations. What Canopy Growth is looking to do here is really establish a leadership position in the U.S. prior to legalization. So a really interesting strategy. I bet we're going to see a lot of copycats. Clearly uh, some creative legally st legal structuring behind this deal. We got a quote from the CEO of Canopy, Bruce Linton. He says, Our right to acquire acreage secures our entrance strategy into the United States as soon as a federally permissible pathway exists. When this is going to happen is up to uh, anyone's guess, but it seems globally that cannabis certainly is becoming slowly approved in different jurisdictions. 
What are your thoughts on this deal? Yeah, I think that expansion to the U.S. by Canopy was always seen as inevitable. The next item that I guess I would be looking for is a partnership with a large pharma company, similar to what Tilray did. But as well, uh, you mentioned you know the the uh, likelihood of copycats with this sort of strategy into the U.S. Uh, I think they'll do similar deals themselves. I think their CEO was quoted that they had uh, been in talks with about six other uh, companies, you know, similar with similar deal structures. To yeah, this. just a crazy amount of deals happening in the space. A lot of consolidation, and when you're dealing with such highly valued shares. They're smart to issue as many of those shares as possible. Obviously, in the future, this will be bad for shareholders because it's substantial dilution. And they really are paying crazy valuations. I mean, this is a $3.4 billion deal for acreage. But if we look at the fundamental financial performance of acreage, last year, they only had sales of $21 million and generated a net loss of $220 million. What does that look on a multiple basis? Well, Canopy Growth is buying acreage for roughly 150 times sales, which is a pretty obscene valuation, but they are using cash and Canopy can make the argument that uh, their shares are wildly overvalued as well. A lot of people talk about this type of deal as using your shares as monopoly money. If you're a person and you have monopoly money and someone's willing to accept it, well, you spend as much as you can because you know it's not gonna hold up its value forever. We saw an interesting dynamic back in the technology bubble, and I remember a specific deal when Yahoo bought Broadcast.com for $5 billion, which made Mark Cuban a billionaire. But that deal and Yahoo shares were so overvalued, not just that, luckily Mark Cuban was smart enough to recognize that he sold out as quickly as he could, but you look at what happened to Broadcast.com and Yahoo wrote that off to zero shortly thereafter. Another interesting aspect of Acreage is they have some real heavyweights on their board of directors, including former Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulroney and former Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives John Boehner. So definitely a lot of uh, interesting characters behind that company, uh, looking like a big win for everyone involved. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of acreage, I definitely see the rationale from their side. They're getting a cash injection where they were looking for capital to scale up their operations. So it definitely makes sense from their side. Another interesting deal point was that Constellation Brands, uh, through their investment in Canopy, or their prior investment in Canopy, actually had veto rights on the transaction, but they did agree to waive this these rights subject to Canopy extending the expiry dates on the warrants that they had for Canopy shares. So exercising some of their influence to make the economics of their shares a little bit better. Yeah, I think Constellation structured their investment such that they want to take control of Canopy at some point. Full ownership. And if you look at Canopy's strategic direction, they really want to maintain their leadership in the global cannabis space. And if that's the case, then they certainly need to be a leader in the U.S. Hence the this acreage deal. Big gains for Qualcomm shareholders with the shares rising 40% on the week as it settles a patent dispute with Apple. Now this legal battle, which became very contentious between these two Silicon Valley heavyweight tech companies, it was really centered around uh, chips, specifically for use in the iPhone. Apple thought they were paying way too much for 
to Qualcomm and they had to pay Qualcomm a royalty on some of the intellectual property that they own. This has been a battle going on for about two years and it went to trial last week and the companies ended up settling. So Apple will buy Qualcomm chips again. Qualcomm coming out said it expected to see a $2 per share increase in earnings. And both companies were asking for billions in damages. Net result, big rally in Qualcomm shares this week. Apple roughly unaffected by the trial results. What are your thoughts on this situation? Yeah, so the the UBS equity research analyst actually has some estimates into how much Apple paid to settle this uh, litigation. It's in the five to six billion dollar range. And likely what that is are the royalty payments that they had stopped paying Mm. as soon as the litigation surfaced a couple of years ago. But as well, the other interesting aspect is that those royalty payments, which are made on a per phone basis, have likely increased from $7.50 to the $8 to $9 range. So another kind of you know win for Qualcomm. But as well, we talked last week about Apple's strategic shift to services, and basically that this is to reduce their reliance on iPhone sales. But really iPhone sales are still 63% of Apple's revenue. So this was something that they had to take care of. And when you factor in some of the concerns on Intel's ability to deliver, that I think there was a lot of incentive for Apple to get this settled. Yeah, it's an interesting situation. I remember Tim complaining, feeling like they're getting robbed by Qualcomm. Nothing's actually going into the phones. This is just a straight payment because it's a royalty for intellectual property. Obviously, extremely positive for Qualcomm. If you think about what royalty income is, it goes straight from the top line to the bottom line. There's effectively no expenses associated with it. Very, very good news for Qualcomm. And like you said, Apple is still highly reliant on its iPhone sales as they seek to make the transition from a hardware producer and and someone, a company heavily reliant on devices to a company more earning steady, growing income from services. So we'll see what uh, Apple comes up with here. Um, Intel announcing they're dropping their pursuit of 5G chips. So it looks like Qualcomm has quite the bright future here. Put out some interesting research on our blog this week entitled, Whatever You Do, Don't Invest Based on Dividend Yield. We did this because we constantly see this mistake over and over again of investors putting their money into stocks based solely on the dividend yield. We presented some interesting analysis on why that is a bad idea. Off the top, let's just get into what dividends are from a real fundamental perspective. A corporation has five main areas in which they can allocate capital. Number one, capital expenditures. Number two, research and development. Number three, mergers and acquisitions. Lastly, dividends and then share buybacks. Now the first three, CapEx, R&D and M&A, are, I would consider, growth initiatives. They undertake those in order to attempt to grow their sales, grow the company. The last two being dividends and share buybacks are alternative capital allocation decisions that seeks to return capital to shareholders, either in terms of payments on their shares, dividends, or going into the market, repurchasing shares via you know everyday purchases in the market or via tender offer if they want to take out a large chunk. Now, from an investor's perspective, dividends and share buybacks are both 
the company returning capital. However, I always prefer share buybacks because they are more tax efficient. A big change in dynamic has happened over the past few decades, specifically since 1982, because prior to 1982, share buybacks were actually illegal. But after 1982, the SEC passed a new rule allowing for companies to repurchase their shares. That gave birth to a notion called shareholder yield. Now, shareholder yield is basically adding the dividend yield plus the share buyback yield. Prior to 1982, the shareholder yield was just the dividend yield, and dividends were pretty good proxies for a corporation's free cash flow. But if we look over the past, say, 20 years, a shareholder yield has steadily grown back way back when dividends were 2%, and now total shareholder yield is about 6% in the S&P 500. That 6% is made up of 4% buyback yield, 2% dividend yield. My point here being that buyback yield is now two thirds of total, share, total shareholder yield. Many investors are making the mistake of focusing on dividends when buybacks are twice as important when it comes to capital being returned to shareholders. So that's one major thing to consider. Another major thing to consider in terms of dividends, dividend yield is that the dividend yield is very easy to manipulate I give the example of closed-end funds. Effectively, a company can set their dividend policy as whatever they want, especially if they have cash, line of credit, or highly liquid assets that they, they could liquidate. It's just if they can't afford it, then each dividend payment is effectively a small liquidation of the entity. A lot of closed-end funds do this where a significant portion of the dividend that they're paying is actually return of capital. So they are paying you back your own money instead of uh, net income from their underlying portfolio or underlying businesses. Another interesting model that used to be in the Canadian market is that of the income trust and the royalty trust. Now, many of these followed the business model of paying out artificially high dividend yield in order to attract investors and a premium multiple. And now that worked for a while and they cover these dividends by continuously raising more and more equity, diluting their, their shareholders even more. Now the business model of utilizing new investors to pay off old investors is known as a Ponzi scheme. Now, I'm not calling any of these businesses Ponzi schemes, but you know, you get the analogy here that uh, you know, I'm trying to make the point that dividends are easy to manipulate, so you should not necessarily trust that the dividend yield is reflect, you know, reflecting the company's underlying fundamental strength or underlying cash flows. Give another example, a specific company called BP Prudhoe Bay Royalty Trust, which is a trust with one asset. Effectively, they get a royalty from BP's Prudhoe Bay oil field on the north slope of Alaska. Wanted to point out on this one is that this company recently cut its dividend because it's variable. So the dividend went from above a dollar down to 35 cents per share. And on the day that they announced the cut, the shares dropped 14%. Now this is completely non-fundamental. It's just technical trading because unsophisticated investors bought the stock expecting a high dividend and didn't do the underlying fundamental analysis of cash flows to truly determine the intrinsic value, which would help determine whether or not the stock is a good investment.
So how do you do this fundamental analysis to determine if the stock is a good investment? Well, a dividend is a poor way of doing it. A much better way is looking at either valuation, we like to look at free cash flow, or quality in terms of return on capital would be one example of a quality factor. Put together some analysis here. We did a simulation over the past 20 years on Canadian stocks. So if we look at the top 10% dividend yielders, they compounded or returned about 8% annually over the past 20 years. And also the bottom 10% dividend yielders had pretty much the exact same return. So there's no alpha from a long short portfolio of highest dividend yielders versus lowest dividend yielders. Yes, they did outperform the TSX composite, the benchmark index by 1% over the year, 1% per year. But if we compare that to say, evaluation-based factors such as free cash flow to enterprise value. The top 10%, i.e. lowest valuation stocks in Canada, compounded at 16% annualized. On that portfolio, a $100,000 investment would be $2 bucks by the end of 20 years. And the bottom 10% decile lost nearly 5% annually. So that's over a 60% loss over the 20 years. If we look at a long short portfolio where you're going long the top 10% lowest valuation stocks in Canada versus short the bottom highest valuation stocks in Canada, that's actually 21% long short alpha right there versus effectively zero on the dividend yield. And that divergence between top and bottom decile really shows the strength of the underlying factor in stock performance. We looked also at quality in terms of return of capital, a similar performance to the valuation measures. So top 10% of quality stocks in Canada over the past 20 years compounded at 15% annually. A $100,000 investment would have turned into $1.7 million over that time frame. Now the bottom 10% actually dropped 8% annually, losing 80% of investors' portfolio over the 20 years. A long short portfolio going long the top quality companies by return of capital in Canada while shorting the bottom lowest quality companies returned 23% long short alpha over the 20 years. So truly exceptional performance. Again, you're seeing a nice divergence between top decile and bottom decile really showing that looking at value and return on capitals are far superior than looking at a company's dividend. One last point I wanted to make is many people choose to invest in dividend stocks because they want the yield, but you can create your own yield by selling shares for how much money you need every month. I mean, there's nothing wrong with generating your own income through capital gains. And best of all, it is much more tax efficient. Did you have any comments on, on the blog this week? Yeah, so I guess given, just a question is that given that dividend yield is a suboptimal factor, what has been driving the popularity of, of dividend investing? Well, unfortunately, a lot of even professional investors are promoting it. Uh, the idea I had, I got this from, was an article in the Globe and Mail just last week, a big mutual fund firm promoting income investing, which I just had a facepalm after that because it's just bad advice. Unfortunately, a lot of investor, professional investors giving bad advice. There's a lot of hype and catchphrases like get paid to wait or income investing. And, and people like getting paid each month 
passively, right? But uh, unfortunately, many unsophisticated investors misunderstand it. They'd be much better looking at total return, which considers capital gains and dividends. Now, if you can create a portfolio that attains a higher total return, your net worth and your, your retirement income will ultimately thank you because they'll be far higher by considering capital gains as well. And you can self-manufacture your own dividend out of capital gains. And that's a point that I really want to hammer home here is don't focus on dividends, focus on total return and creating your own dividend through capital gains. And that's it, ladies and gents, for episode 10 of the Absolute Return podcast. We hope you have a great Easter. You can check us out next week, absolutereturnpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter and any social media. Be sure to give us a rating. Send us any questions, comments, whatever it is. We'll chat with you next week. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.